Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord says to Moses, I have seen the people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Uh, Most of us probably don't like it when someone's angry with us. Some people are weird, and they don't care. But most of us simply don't like someone who's angry with us. It makes us uncomfortable, uneasy. It's kind of a fretful um, feeling. That's some of us. And I venture to say that uh, none of us, as fallen, finite human beings, are likely comfortable with the idea of God himself that he could be angry with us. That he could be rightly and justifiably angry with us. When we read these words, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, you know, you, you have to ask, what could possibly make God this angry? In a word, what could make God this angry? Quite simply, the answer, sin. Sin. If if you look at verse 30, when Moses finally comes down, we'll we'll get to this in a couple weeks. Uh, Notice Moses says, you have sinned a great sin. You've sinned a great sin. I mean, how is something defined as a great sin? I mean, is the cliche true that in the eyes of God, all sin is sin? Apparently not. Be careful of cliches in the Christian community. How does something become a great sin and not just a sin? Uh, Both of which anger God, by the way. I mean, but what about this? You know, what's before us this morning is is a worship issue. And what makes it great is its timing and its place. 
Now think about this. For seven chapters, we've been atop Mount Sinai. We've been up there with Moses as he receives instructions for the tabernacle. Now the scene shifts to the foot of the mountain, down below. And what we're going to see in chapters 32 to 34 uh, is a major crisis, a, a profound irony, really, when we consider the present text. Because as Moses is up on top of the mountain, hearing the intricate details of how God's people are to come into his presence, down below, down on the plain, down at the bottom, are God's people, Israel, who are taking the initiative to decide how they're going to come into the presence of God. So the contrast between what's going on atop the mountain and what's going on down at the foot of the mountain couldn't be more antithetical. Think about it. On the top of the mountain, Moses is communing with God. At the foot of the mountain, the people are rebelling, rebelling against the same God. Up above, God reveals his provision for salvation for his people. Down below, the people are attempting to make their own provision. Up above, God gives instruction regarding Aaron's high priesthood and how he, how he will eventually mediate for the people. And down below, Aaron is conspiring with the people to violate God's commandments and to lead them astray. Up above, while Moses is receiving God's instructions, down below, the people are getting antsy. Remember, Moses told them, wait for me. Wait for me, I I will return. Well, they grew weary. They didn't like the position they were in. How often is it that we don't like the position we're in when we have to wait on the Lord? So growing discontent, they take matters into their own hands, and now they're going to do something about it. Now, there are several themes, beloved, that circulate throughout our text. That is chapters 32 to 34. Mainly what we see are three things. Rebellion, mediation, and restoration. Okay, that's what we see through chapters 32 to 34. Rebellion, mediation, and restoration highlighting for us the role and importance of Israel's mediator, Moses. Without the mediator, beloved, Israel does not survive this this incident. That will be our focus, Lord willing, next week, okay? Today, what's in view is everybody's favorite doctrine, the doctrine of sin. (laughs) Specifically displayed by the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. So, this account reveals uh, two realities for us this morning. Number one is forgetfulness and sinful expectations, okay? Forgetfulness and and sinful expectations which lead to idolatry, okay? That is forgetting God, forgetting His grace, forgetting His provision, forgetting His promises leads to idolatry. That's the first thing. 
The second thing in view is that idolatry provokes God's wrath. Another favorite subject of modern evangelicals. So what, what then is idolatry? Well, simply said, it's putting someone or something in the place of God. Martin Luther's favorite, uh, famous words, rather, uh, regarding idolatry, he says this, quote, Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. G.K. Beale, he says, an idol is whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. Another theologian says, and I quote, the idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. So so basically, whatever we seek to provide what only Christ can give us, be it joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, acceptance, let alone salvation, is an idol. Now, many folks in our day don't believe idolatry to be a problem because they only associate it with shrines and temples and carved images. You know, they look at this account of the golden calf and say, hey man, you know, I enjoy eating cows, but I'm not tempted to worship them. Is a red meat fan that I am. <laughs> Amen, is right, is right. Look, this narrative isn't ultimately about a golden calf. The focus of our attention is centered on the human heart. The human heart, which is bent on forging idols, to paraphrase John Calvin, who said, the human heart is an idol factory. One commentator puts it like this, quote, Heart idolatry exists everywhere. Common idols today include money, sex, a romantic relationship, your competence, skill, education, peer approval, secure and comfortable circumstances, beauty, brains, success, and ambition. End quote. See, this account, beloved, helps us to recognize idolatry within our own hearts and to repent of it. That's how this helps us, okay? So this is going to cut deep, which it should. But we're not left without hope. Amen? Now, this is a shocking account. I mean, when you read this, it's almost hard to believe. Right? Exodus 32, because the rebellion is so deliberate, the timing of it is so absolutely appalling, we look at it and we say, there's no way. After all that God has done, after all that he has shown them, the miracles, the power, the provision, supernatural, they do this so quickly, so blatantly, so defiantly. I mean, the details, they're almost exaggerated. When you read this thing, the most ridiculous of which is verse 24. Look at it. When Moses, he's finally going to come down, and Moses asks, what's going on here? Why have you brought such a great sin upon the people? He asks Aaron. 
Okay, that's a moment in which Aaron should have or ought to have confessed what he did and explained his involvement in it. But notice he says, they gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> we laugh. You know, you, you wonder, did, did Moses cock his head, squint his eyes, say, brother, right? This is Aaron, his older brother. Really? That's your answer? You know, this, this incident is used in a, is a paradigm event in Scripture. It's referred to probably more than any other incident throughout all of Scripture because it so clearly shows us the dynamics of sin and the way it works in the human heart. You and I are no different than these Israelites. It pro- portrays the anatomy of our own idolatry. And it serves for us as a template to our own lives to expose just how quickly we fall into the same kind of sin patterns. You know, my sin, my idolatry of the heart is no less blatant or foolish in the eyes of God than this. And whatever excuses that I tend to come up with, which seem to be the same excuses throughout my entire Christian life, excuses for my own justification, any, any, any excuses I try to come up with to cover my idolatrous ambitions are just as ridiculous and useless of a defense, that is, as out came the calf. Right? This is me. I am Aaron. When I make excuses like this. So here then, we learn from this account that idolatry begins with forgetting, and forgetting leads to sinful expectations. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together. To Aaron. And they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Now remember, verse, chapter 24, verse 18 tells us that Moses was up on top of the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Did not eat, did not drink. Now in their eyes, Moses has delayed. And they're not willing to wait. So in their impatience, notice, they begin to reject Moses' leadership on the basis, here it is, of ignorance. We do not know what has become. So they carry out their rebellion. They carry out their idolatry based on what they did not know. What they did not know caused them to reject what they did know. They saw God's power. They heard his promises. They experienced his provision. Power, provision, and promises. They reject because of what they don't know at the moment. And then it gives vent to idolatrous longings. And then what they do is they try to separate Moses and his role from God's activity. 
Moses was God's instrument. Moses was called by God. He was Israel's appointed leader. So his time away was God's doing, not Moses' doing. So for them to separate Moses' doing from God's doing, in their mind, justified their rebellion. So by rejecting Moses, they're rejecting God. Their problem's not with Moses. Their problem is with Almighty God. You know, sometimes people will use these same tactics within the church. They might lobby for their own agenda. So they try to grab the ear of somebody. They might try to grab the ear of a leader. They might try to pressure them into thinking the way they think in what ought to be done. You know, they'll say things like this. You know, um, I'm not the only one that thinks like this. Okay, there's always someone ready to cause division. This is why spiritual leaders must maintain unfailing courage and conviction. Now, perhaps the most egregious thing that Israel has done at this point was to forget and ignore their own promises that they made to God. After they saw the power of God... In in Exodus 24, 3, they all answered with one voice this. Everything that the Lord has said, we will, we will do. So not only have they forgotten at this point the vows they made, the promises of obedience that they declared to God, their Redeemer, their Creator, having witnessed thunders and flashings of lightning and a trumpet from the top of the mountain. They witnessed all this. They had forgotten what they promised. And more than that, they had forgotten what God had done for them. That's the biggest boo-boo. So here you have doubt that produces forgetfulness and the failure to trust God's purposes. We fall into the same patterns. We're waiting. We begin to doubt. We forget what God has done. We forget who we are in Christ And then perhaps it may show up in in rejection of leadership. It shows up in a hundred different ways. But for them, this is how it shows up. They try to separate Moses, God's leader, from God's purposes. So this is obviously very disorienting for them. This is very uncomfortable in this time of silence, relatively speaking. Forty days. I don't know how far into this they are. But... As they're waiting in this time of relative silence, there's a vacuum of worship going on down below, beloved. Or I should say a vacuum of worship style that's being invented. The people in the valley below become increasingly restless and hard to deal with. Notice verse 1. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron, saying, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. So when we read this phrase, you know, gathered around, they gathered themselves around, that's a menacing phrase, beloved. This is an expression of aggression. This is not a fraternal phrase. Our pal Aaron. No. This is the same situation when you're surrounded by a group of bullies. 
This brought me back to remembering when I moved into a new neighborhood in second grade. You know, if you look different than everybody else, which I did and do, for some, for some reason, that ruffles the feathers of young men. So they'll circle around you and start poking at you. That's the picture. They surround this man. This is rage on display. They're demanding Aaron to do for them what God commanded them not to do. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So Aaron perhaps, in trying to cover them from violating the first commandment, violates the second. You shall not make unto thee any graven image of anything in heaven above or earth below or sea beneath the earth. For I, the Lord your God, am his jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third fourth generations of those who hate me, showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So perhaps in trying to cover for violation of the first, he leads them right into the second. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, of your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Where'd the gold come come from? Egypt. It came from God. It's plunder, as God promised. Right? And it was to be used for the tabernacle. And it was to be a free will offering. So now, under this kind of leadership, it becomes forced. Take it off. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. This is not Aaron's finest hour, beloved. His actions are a testimony of failed leadership. First, his first failure is that he remained quiet when Israel spoke disparagingly against Moses. He never stood up. He kept his mouth shut. That's a problem. Secondly, he caved to the pressure so as to appease the mob. He feared men. And then thirdly, he failed to call on leadership to stand against the revelry. Remember, Hur was left there to assist him. He also had the 70 elders of Israel. We don't read about him calling on them to stand with him. It's a problem that always leads to trouble. So this is either out of fear, it may have been out of a desire to be accepted, and today, as you know, there's an entire church culture that reflects this account. Do away with worship the way God prescribes it, and we'll do it our own way to make it more popular, more acceptable to the culture. So the result is always an attendance of worship consumers led by men and hideously in our day, women who pander to people's desires. And they call it worship. See, they do it in the name of Jesus. Whatever it is. See, notice, the calf is not being declared as God. 
The calf isn't being declared as Yahweh, but as a pagan representation of the one true God. And notice verse 5. Tomorrow shall be a feast to capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the one true God. So worshiping through something that God forbids, or worshiping through someone that God forbids, does not make it any less of an offense to God. There's one mediator between God and man. That's the God-man, Christ Jesus. Worship's about glorifying God, not gratifying self. They wanted to gratify themselves. People to this day use Jesus' name to advocate their own cause, their own policy, their own agenda. And for instance, they'll say, you know, Jesus is served and honored through any and all religious activity, so long as those people are sincere. After all, all temples point to heaven. And they do it in the name of Jesus. Some claim that so-called marriage between homosexuals is acceptable, beautiful, and glorifying to God, and it is not. It is absolutely contrary to the commanded will of God. But they do it in the name of Jesus. There are those who want to edit God. How do you edit God? You try to edit the word of God. So what you have today is a bunch of people who who want to change feminine and masculine pronouns in Scripture to fit their politically correct ideology. Editing God. And they attach God's name to it in the name of Jesus. It's utter absurdity. No different. Just because you do it in Jesus' name doesn't mean you have God's blessing upon it. By using God's sacred name, Aaron, Aaron was trying to say that the golden calf was for the glory of God. That's what he's doing. See how we don't change? We're prone to the same sins, man. But by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. So as I bring you down low, which the text is going to bring us down low, it will bring us back up again, okay? So stay with me. You know, Aaron here had obviously become so accustomed to speaking on behalf of Moses that he had no power to speak for himself, Remember, he was the mouthpiece for Moses. And it's easy for a man to speak when the crowds are all applauding him. It's easy for a man to speak when he has the support of key people. But when those key people go away, that same man will now be tested. Will he stand? Will he speak? Or will he cave? Al Mohler writes that one thing Christian leaders must always remember is that leaders are speakers. Leadership requires bold, convictional, and clear communication, even in the face of opposition. End quote. See, what mattered most to Aaron, obviously, was not what God said, but what the people desired. Philip Ryken, in his wonderful commentary, says this, and I quote, We do the same thing. 
Whenever we let people pressure us into doing something we know is wrong, this could be on the playground when kids are talking about something bad. You remember those days? At the office when the numbers don't add up and our boss tells us not to ask any questions. On the weekend when people want us to party. We do it in the church when we compromise the message so people won't get offended, end quote. You see, in this case, Aaron's spine turned to spaghetti. His courage to cowardice. His conviction to compromise. Right here. So Aaron gave the people what they wanted, not what the people needed. This wasn't for the glory of God. This was for for sinful pleasure. If you notice here, they're not worshiping God. They're partying. Notice, verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, uh, there, there are sexual overtones enlisted here. Uh, whatever they're doing, don't know what it is. It's indecent. It's some kind of orgiastic, lewd celebration. And they're calling it worship. False worship always leads to false living, which leads to immorality. It leads to debauchery. Attempting to, to, to worship the one true God in a pagan way is, is nothing is nothing less than the paganization of God's people. This is what we see. So, forgetfulness produces sinful expectations here of these people, leads to idolatry, which results in debauchery. How quickly they have forgotten. They saw the power of God. They saw the ten side judgments of God upon Egypt. They saw the provision of God made for them, water out of a rock, manna every day. And they heard, beloved, the promises of God. God promised them, I will always what? I will be with you. I will be with you. Look at Psalm 106, verse 12. They believed his word. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. From praise to forgetfulness. Praise to forget. I don't know how many times I've been guilty of this in my life. Praise out of one side of my mouth. Forgetness out of the other side of my mind. Which leads to sin of my mouth. Which is sin of my heart. So in in forgetting, notice, they resort back to patterns that they learned where? In Egypt. They learned these patterns there. They went back to the very thing they were delivered from. You know, this explains why Christians who are purchased and delivered by the blood of Christ, when they're tempted, they sometimes run headlong back into idolatry. And they're looking for something or someone to do for them what only God can do for them. They seek comfort. They seek courage. 
They seek satisfaction. They seek acceptance with people, approval. They want to feel like they're approved, so some men run back to pornography. And they hunker down in a closet somewhere in front of their screen. Single people will run back to sex outside of marriage. Some people run back to drugs. Some people go back to a place where they have status or fame. Fame is hard to be delivered from. You've heard of famous people coming to faith, supposed faith in Jesus Christ. They, they disappear from the scene for a while, only to reappear and present themselves in a more worldly way than they did in the first place, probably because they miss fame, approval. So they run back. Popularity. That is, whatever last gave them pleasure. We Christians will do the same thing. And it becomes a substitute for the one who has actually redeemed us, the one true God and his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? In the Christian community, take warning to this. Even particular doctrines, doctrines beautiful, particular truths of God, a particular doctrine can become an idol. When it's the drum you beat, that's all you talk about. That can become an idol. I told somebody this week, even the doctrine of justification by faith. Who doesn't love that doctrine? You miss it when you stop loving and serving the Lord of the doctrine. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. We have to remember, beloved. We have to turn back when we find ourselves in these places. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God's not bound, amen. We have so much more of God's promises fulfilled than Israel did. We have the resident presence of God, the Holy Spirit within us. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And there are times to our shame. There are times to my shame. We find ourselves not being satisfied in what we have in Christ. And all we have, beloved, whether you realize it or not, is in Christ. That's it, man. You you may live to be a... I talked to a guy the other day. Doesn't go to this church. His wife left him for a hotshot military guy. Hey, I love my military guys. It just happens to be that's what he is. This guy's devastated. Devastated. And I told him, brother, your focus shouldn't be on the wife who's left you for another man. Let your focus be on Christ. He says, man, I'm going to have trust issues. Yes, you are. But the more you look to Christ, the greater your trust issues or the lack thereof will disappear. Only according to his grace and time. Because it's hard. He was a broken man. So that's the first thing. We see here that forgetfulness leads to sinful expectations. It plummets one right into idolatry as it did to Israel. Second point in the text Idolatry provokes God's wrath. Make no mistake about it. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, notice, for your people, and we'll get to this next week, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. You know that same description is used in Genesis 6 before the flood? The corruption of mankind? We, beloved, have corrupted ourselves. 
All of humanity has corrupted themselves. Uh, That's a summary statement made throughout Scripture. You read it, you read about it throughout the Psalms. When you get to Romans 1, what do we read? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. You know, every single human being, regardless of what they say or what they believe, is a worshiper. Every single human being from throughout time is a worshiper. We will all bow the knee, literally or figuratively, we will bow the knee to something or someone. And if we deny the fact that we, that, that we worship anything or anyone, we'll say, I don't worship anyone, I don't worship anything, um, ironically, those people become worshipers of self. You can claim you don't worship anything. I'm an, I'm, I'm an atheist. You worship yourself. You're a worshiper. We set people up as objects of our worship. It could be, I don't know, an actor, some celebrity, a politician. And then we wait to hear what they say so we know what to say and how to think. And then we get carried away with worldly philosophy and thinking that's not centered on Christ. That's the warning of the Colossians 2.8. This is what we do. Some people worship the earth. The earth is their idol. Everything's green. Let's be green. Let's worship the earth. Get down and kiss the ground. Eat dirt. Worship the earth. People worship their dogs and their cats and other created things. In other words, beloved, it's a heart issue. Stephen the martyr in his last sermon, referred to this situation in Exodus. In in, in Acts 7, verse 39, it says that God's people in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Did you get that? In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of what? Their hands. Notice what he goes on to say which is interesting, because this is a perpetual heart condition for Israel that will follow them, and God will judge them for many times over. Notice in verse 43, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. So get the picture. Okay, During their time in the wilderness... During the 40 years in the wilderness, verse 42, as the Levites would pick up or take up the tabernacle as God ordered them to do, here's the picture. As they pulled up stakes, the people picked up their idols and traveled to the next spot. People do that and they go from church to church. They have this little idol that they want accepted or approved. So they take it from church to church until somebody finally approves of it. Verse 8, they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, as a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make, may make a great nation out of you. Bottom line, sin angers God. 
Israel earned the right to be destroyed by God. Would it have been just for him to destroy them? Yes. I will consume them. Notice, I'll make a great nation out of you, Moses. I'll start afresh with you. These are Abrahamic words. Remember what God said to Abraham? I'll make a great nation out of you. So God says, you know those promises I gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and in 17, reiterated in 18 and 21? Those promises I'm going to give to you. And friends, make no mistake, this is no idle threat. This is no idle threat. In other words, God's plan is going to go on. It will come to pass. Israel's disobedience cannot mess up God's plan, but Israel can certainly miss out on the blessing of God. God's sovereign. In one fell swoop, God wants to deal with them, beloved, and their sin. If you notice, he doesn't separate their sin from the sinner. You don't ever want to say, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Be careful. Okay, be careful. Now, we all know as Christians that there are times that we have to separate those things and we have to love a person despite the sin. Okay, as we talk about a holy God, we know that when he condemns sin, he condemns the sinner with the sin. Regardless of how, how archaic or arcane that thought may be in the judgment of our mind about this holy God, newsflash for everyone. God's wrath is existent, genuine, and justified. Amen. As I said, I'm taking you low. What do you do with Psalm 5.5? The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and God who feels indignation every day. That is anger, fury, and wrathfulness. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. See, friends, we have to feel the weight of God's wrath against both sin and the sinner because it's a weight that is unbearable. You get the picture? It's unbearable. Just like Israel, men and women today are on the brink of destruction that is both earned and deserved. You know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that is not a mere sermon relic from early America of a genius theologian and philosopher. In case you don't know, that's a famous sermon written by Jonathan Edwards. Okay, it's more than just a relic. It's a reality and a statement of the natural condition of every sinner before a holy God. Humbling, isn't it? Sobering. God's wrath is as real as my sin. And just in case you think you have no sin, the scripture says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So how can 
such justifiable wrath, this wrath of God, be restrained? How can it be abated? How can it be placated? How can it be appeased? How can it be, to use a more theological word or biblical word, how can it be propitiated, satisfied? Well, if we're on the scene at Sinai, what would we say? Logically, we'd say, get to the appointed place with the appointed sacrifice. Get there, get there quickly. Get the priesthood to provide atonement. But guess what? There's no tabernacle at this point to provide propitiation. He's still up on the mountain getting instruction for the tabernacle. And ultimately, there's inadequacy even in it, the earthly tabernacle, because it only points to that which will truly, ultimately satisfy. Now, don't forget in the background of all this is Satan. Satan's in the background. He's attempting here to derail the plans of God. That is for God to dwell with his people on a cursed earth, reestablishing holy ground with his people. That is the meeting place of God, the tabernacle. And even before Moses gets down from atop the mountain, what's the temptation? Worship over here. Bow down, worship before the calf. And so too our Lord Jesus Christ, before he ever gets out of the wilderness, being tempted by Satan himself, what's the final temptation? In a moment of time, he shows them all the kingdoms of the world, and he says to Jesus, the Son of God, bow down. Worship me, and it's all yours. And who is that temptation towards? The very tabernacle of God himself, to which this tabernacle pointed. This is the temptation. Worship over here. Worship like this. Not this true God. So throughout this section, chapters 32 to 34, We see the crucial role of Moses as mediator that's set before us. Okay, now on the upswing, here's the hope. Notice verse 11. We're not going to get into this today. This is just to whet your appetite for next week. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Without the mediator, as I said, Israel does not survive this account. They would be consumed. And of course, beloved, this points us forward and begins to shed light on the crucial role of a greater mediator, the ultimate mediator, of whom Moses is only a shadow. A fuzzy foreshadowing of the mediator to come. That mediator is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The only one who can quench the wrath of God. Look at Psalm 106 again. Is it up there? Oh, good. Verse 19. Notice. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image 
They exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. We hear that language in Romans 1, don't we? They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Wonders, wondrous works in the land of Ham. And awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So there's Egyptian plague language. Therefore, he said, he would destroy them. Look at this. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So, plague language. What's the worst sign judgment shown to Egypt? Death of the firstborn. What's God's threat here? Death of them all. That's a greater judgment than the final plague judgment in Egypt. The threat is the death of them all. And then he moves on to military language. Notice this. You have false worship. So he he uses military language, and that is that word breach. Notice. There's a breach in, say, the wall of protection. There's a breach or or a break or a fracture in, in this fortress or in some line of protection. It's been breached. God established protective perimeters around the mountain, didn't he? What did he say? Don't touch up against the mountain, lest you what? Die, because I, your God, am holy. I'm holy. But more than that, God provided for Israel moral boundaries established in the Ten Commandments. Keep them and you shall live break them you shall die because this was protective measures from his holiness without which they're destroyed who's the destroyer make no mistake we'll see in a minute the destroyer is god so idolatrous rebellion has created a breach A hole has been cut in the dam of protection. And through that hole, God's wrath is seeping through and Israel's about to be drowned in the sea of God's wrath. Had not Moses, had not Moses, God's appointed mediator, stood in the breach before him to do what? to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Deserved? Yeah. They deserved it. You deserve it. I deserve it. So God's chosen mediator at this point of time in redemptive history stood in the breach to stay the sword of the one threatening destruction. Now, I told you at the outset of our study of the Exodus, in case you ever have problems or trouble wondering what the application is for any part or portion of the Exodus, just go to 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, look at it. I want you to know, brothers, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, New Covenant people, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place for, place as, examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumbling as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Notice destroyer with a capital D. That's God with a capital G. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know, we're told in the New Testament not to despise the patience that is shown to us. Not to become presumptuous in the grace displayed to us through Jesus Christ. God's anger and wrath against sin and the sinner is currently being restrained by a greater mediator that is Jesus Christ, the true sacrificial Lamb of God who bore the wrath and offered his life for yours. For yours. The true mediator. God's wrath rests on every single human being, beloved, unless and until something's done about it. And without a proper understanding and feeling of God's just anger, if you don't understand the wrath of God, the biblical story makes absolutely no sense. If you don't understand the deserved wrath of God upon humanity, the cross of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is an anomaly and makes no sense whatsoever. Do we see this? Only by the grace of God, worked in us by the resident princes of the Holy Spirit, can I possibly understand something about my sin, my guilt, and God's righteous anger that is due to me? Without which, His wrath remains upon me. And instead, once I come to understand this by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, I instead understand that the anger that I deserve has been poured out upon the innocent one, Jesus Christ, On the cross. He bore the punishment due to me. The one who rightly deserves it. This is why we have to understand the wrath of God. Don't ignore the wrath of God. Or you'll never understand the cross of Christ. Ever. He alone, Jesus, stands as the breach. To turn away God's wrath. He is God's one and only mediator. We'll see more of this in the coming weeks as we look at the mediatorial role of Moses who foreshadows Christ. Glory to God, amen. John 3.18, whoever believes in him, Jesus Christ, is not what? Condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. For he, 1 John 2.2 tells us, is the propitiation for our sins. He is and provides satisfaction for your sin, for my sin. For in our place condemned he stood. So we deserve to be cut off. We deserve to be disowned. We deserve to be destroyed. And when we come to grips, beloved, with passages like this, it helps us to understand just how great grace is. And may we not be a forgetful people who are saved by grace through faith according to Christ as declared in the scriptures for the glory of God alone. Amen. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached, Paul says, in my gospel. Perhaps today is the first day you've ever heard the gospel and it has finally made sense. You can be ensured that the Holy Spirit is perhaps working on your behalf if you indeed believe it now. So if you've been convinced through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life today by the proclaimed word, you must repent and believe. And the condemnation that's on you now, you'll come to understand, was on Christ at the cross. And you now stand as a person who's declared righteous in the sight of God. Trust him today. For blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ, Paul says to Ephesians, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Glory to God Almighty.